Hello, we're looking at Mark's gospel for the last time. I'm sorry, that's a little dramatic, isn't it? We will continue to look at Mark's gospel, but this is the end of a sermon series on Mark's gospel. This is the 54th sermon. Has it felt like that? No? Maybe? We're looking, uh, however, at a passage that I need to explain a little bit about. This is from Mark chapter 16, beginning at verse 9, and I don't mind saying to you that I'm a little insecure about preaching this particular text. You'll see it has all kinds of markings around it in your Bibles, Mark chapter 16, uh, verses 9 through 20. So I need to explain a few things before I uh, dive into a sermon on this particular passage, which I am going to do, by the way. But let me talk to you little theologians first of all. I'd like for you to draw a picture of an airplane for me. Big airplane, holds lots of people. Did you hear me? Yeah, airplane. Big airplane, holds lots of people. But let's make the airplane out of pasta. Because it's fun to... Spaghetti. Do you know what pasta is? Spaghetti. Noodles. Airplane holds lots of people. Draw Draw an airplane made out of noodles, but it's fine, just fine. Okay? Our passage is Mark chapter 16, verses 9 through 20, and what this passage is about is about God doing amazing things through very weak Christians. Amazing things through very weak Christians. Like a plane made out of spaghetti, but still able to fly. Mark chapter 16, beginning at verse 9, if you would first of all join me in prayer. Let's pray together. Father, even as we don't understand exactly where these words uh, come from, there is a sense in which uh, we don't uh, know exactly where all of the words of the Bible uh, come from. We don't have original documents, but we do uh, trust that you will use our study and contemplation and my preaching of this particular passage for your own purposes, for your own glory. Uh, Use these words, Father, for our good and your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Mark chapter 16, beginning at verse 9. Now, when he rose early on the first day of the week, he appeared first to Mary Magdalene, from whom he had cast out seven demons. She went and told those who had been with him as they mourned and wept. But when they heard that he was alive and had been seen by her, they would not believe it. After these things, he appeared in another form to two of them as they were walking into the country, and they went back and told the rest, but they did not believe them. Afterward, he appeared to the eleven themselves as they were reclining at table, and he rebuked them for their unbelief and hardness of heart, because they had not believed those who saw him after he had risen. And he said to them, Go into all the world and proclaim the gospel to the whole creation. Whoever believes and is baptized will be saved, but whoever does not believe will be condemned. And these signs will accompany those who believe. In my name they shall cast out demons, they will speak in new tongues, they will pick up serpents with their hands, and if they drink any deadly poison, it will not hurt them. They will lay their hands on the sick, and they will recover. So then the Lord Jesus, after he had spoken to them, was taken up into heaven and sat down at the right hand of God. And they went out and preached everywhere while the Lord worked with them and confirmed the message by accompanying signs. This is the word of our Lord. 
Well, we need to begin where we need to begin, don't we? What is this word? The, the difficulty is a difficulty that you should feel as readers of the Bible, but I feel this, I, I just feel this enormous weight preaching this text. Let me offer you a reminder of why I feel this way. I said last week, we don't have the original text of the Bible, do we? We don't have the original text of the Old and New Testaments, but when we think about the New Testament, we have some 5,000 copies and versions and fragments that uh, we uh, can date from the year 135 to the year 1200. We have a lot of examples of Scripture. The difficulty, as I said last week, is that uh, some of our most oldest and reliable manuscripts don't actually include Mark chapter 16, verses 9 through 20, which is, which is what a footnote in your Bible should say to you. It's sometime during the 400s, there was an old Latin manuscript that included bits of this longer ending that we have just read together. But even way back in the, four, uh, the fifth century, Good scholars like Jerome were noticing that, yes, there are these few verses, 9 through 20, but they don't show up in every manuscript. And then in 1906, near the pyramids in Egypt, there was a discovery of a manuscript, and that manuscript contained this longer ending that we have just read, 1906, in the pyramids of Egypt, or near the, the pyramid complex. But that manuscript only dates to the late 400s. That's the problem. I believe this longer ending of Mark is not actually written by Mark. It was written maybe two, maybe three, maybe four generations after Mark. The late R.T. France, who's a very reliable and evangelical scholar, uh, he taught at Oxford and at the London School of Theology, uh, he says that it is virtually unanimous among modern textual scholarship that uh, this passage of Scripture was not actually written by Mark. It was added later. Its style is nothing like Mark's style. I'm using this time for the introduction, and I'll tell you what this passage is teaching us, but let me, let me just answer this question. Why even preach it? About five or maybe six weeks ago, I wasn't going to preach this passage. And you know from last week that I wanted us to entertain the possibility that Mark chapter 16, verse 8 may have been the last verse of Mark's gospel. It's a really tough ending to Mark's gospel. But verse 8 may have been the end. So why preach this? Three reasons. The first reason is this. It's actually in your Bible. It's in your Bible. It's in the King James Bible, New King James, NIV, ESV. It's in your Bible. Why? Well, it's in your Bible because translators are uncertain about it, although the text is very old. By the 5th century, almost every manuscript of the New Testament, Mark's Gospel, included verses 9 through 20. By the 5th century, late 5th century. So, the first reason I'm preaching it is in your Bible. The second reason I'm preaching from it is this passage is not out of consort with other passages in Scripture. It's not a false passage. In fact, one commentator says, really, verses 9 through 20, they feel a little bit like secondhand information, the kind of information that could be corroborated with other parts 
of the New Testament. And it could be, as some scholars think, it could be that this was added at the end of Mark's gospel as a well-meant attempt to fill in perceived gaps with the abrupt ending of Mark. And by the way, this might be why most commentators actually cover. John Calvin covers these verses. Most commentators cover verses 9 through 20. So I'm preaching from these verses because it's in your Bible. I want you to understand what's in your Bible. I'm preaching from it because it's not false, not out of accord with the rest of Scripture. But the third reason I'm preaching from it is because all of you are gracious listeners. You just are. You're gracious listeners, and I know that if, that if I can just explain what I'm doing, you'll give me some room. This is the kind of congregation that I can say, I don't know why this is in the Bible. In fact, there's a verse in here about deadly poison. I don't know what's up with the deadly poison. I'm preaching from this section of your Bible because I believe that you are gracious listeners. I know that you'll be patient with me. And I think I know that you understand that this is a really strange portion of Scripture to find in your Bible, and I want to be very honest with you as I explain this passage, which is what I'm about to do. Long introduction, right? But I want you to just consider generally what this section feels like to you. What do these verses feel like to you? I'll I'll tell you what they feel like to me. They don't feel like a summary, like someone's trying to tie up loose ends of Mark's gospel, that somehow Mark had things wrong or left things hanging. This actually doesn't feel like an attempt to tie up loose ends. To me, what it feels like is an extended application like an extended application. In fact, when you look at the verses in our passage that come from the lips of Jesus, there's four verses, 15 through 18. Those four verses actually feel a lot to me like not just a command, but an application of the life and ministry of our Lord and Savior. In this text, the gospel of Jesus, his life, his death, and especially his resurrection, and even his ascension, verse 19, even his ascension, In this text, the gospel of Jesus does something to believers. It compels them to tell others the gospel. Look real quickly, if you would please, at verse 15 and verse 20. You see those uh, preachy words there, proclaim in verse 15, preached in verse 20? In the Greek, they're the same word. And it's a very significant word. It's a word that means to herald, to proclaim, to announce, maybe even shout. It's to do all of those things with great authority. Verse 15 and verse 20, significant words. Here's what I think this passage is teaching us, and I'll explain why. The resurrection of Jesus, the gospel of Jesus, actually has practical implications for us. Even weak followers will become heralds of the good news. The resurrection has practical implications. Even weak followers, followers like you, followers like me, even weak followers will become heralds of the good news. Now let me begin with that word weak, weak followers. My first point is looking at verses 9 through 14. What this writer is telling us is that the belief of the disciples is very slow. Keep in mind, these disciples are not just any disciples. These are the first disciples. These are the main disciples. 
the ones Jesus appointed, called by name, desired, led into ministry. This passage focuses on an application of proclaiming the good news, but we cannot help but see that this passage functions as an indictment to followers of Jesus. To the original followers of Jesus, belief in the gospel? Turns out it wasn't easy. Is it, e- is it easy for you, Christian, to believe in the gospel? It turns out it wasn't easy for them. Belief didn't come quickly. And I think that the writer of this portion wants us to see that. I mean, look real quickly at verse 9. There's going to be three examples of how the belief of the disciples is slow. Look, look where he begins. Mary Magdalene, she's seen the resurrected Jesus. Now, we didn't read about that in Mark's gospel, that Mary Magdalene actually saw the resurrected Jesus, but that's okay. She was at the tomb, and it's not that far-fetched to imagine her seeing Jesus, but nevertheless, John chapter 20, Matthew chapter 28, tell us that Mary Magdalene saw the resurrected Jesus. And so here in verse 9, she's seen Jesus. She has this wonderful reputation in Mark's gospel, doesn't she? Mark chapter 15, uh, this woman is a woman who has followed Jesus, ministered to Jesus. This is a woman who has come up with Jesus from, from uh, Galilee. Mark chapter 15, verses 40 and 41. This is a wonderful follower of Jesus. And she's seen the resurrected Jesus. And she actually comes and she uh, tells others what she has seen. Now, notice what we have to pay careful attention to in verse 10. In verse 10, having seen the resurrected Jesus, she went to those who had been with him. Those who were mourning his death. Who do you think verse 10 is about? I believe it's about the disciples, those who were with him. And she goes to them, and uh, she tells them that uh, he is alive. And yet, look what happens in verse 11. They would not believe it. They would not believe it. And in case you missed that, uh, look now at verses 12 through 13. There's a a similar uh, illustration that shows us that the belief of the disciples is slow. There's another time that Jesus was seen by someone else, two people, in fact, And again, Mark has said in his gospel nothing whatsoever about this event apart from chapter 16, this actual passage. You see there are these two disciples and they're walking into the country. And of course, verse 12 says that Jesus appeared in another form. That does sound strange. What form is that? But it might simply refer to the fact that Jesus, rather than standing by the open tomb, which is how Mary saw him, Jesus is now actually uh, walking with these individuals, with them. Uh, Maybe that's all another form means. A parallel to this passage is Luke chapter 24. You should write that down in your margin. Luke chapter 24 is the parallel for this uh, event. But notice what the writer is making us pay attention to. In verse 13, these two disciples reported to the rest what they had seen that either it was Jesus or someone like Jesus in every way, but what is their response? Verse 13, they did not believe them. And if you're not getting the point, look at verse 14. Now in verse 14, uh, the 11, remember Judas Iscariot is not part of them any longer. The 11, they're reclining at table, and who should appear? Again, Luke 24, John chapter 20, similar scenes. Jesus, he appears before the 11 together. We have progressed from one woman who followed and ministered to Jesus to two disciples to now all 11 of them in the very presence of Jesus. Do you see 
what this author is doing. What does he want us to pay attention to? Look at verse 14. With his own mouth, Jesus rebuked them for what? For their unbelief. They wouldn't believe Mary. They wouldn't believe the two disciples. And they are rebuked by Jesus himself for their intense opposition to belief. Why these three illustrations of unbelief amidst the closest followers of Jesus? Clearly, this passage is not a marketing plan to make these disciples look good, is it? You know, we know how to show others the best side of ourselves. We know how to do that, make sure people can see us in the best light. But this author seems to want us to see the bad side of the disciples. They're rebuked by Jesus. And in Mark's gospel, rebuke is only used in one other place. Do you know where that is? That is, those two men hanging next to him on the cross are said to rebuke Jesus. Let the king of Israel come down from the cross that we may see and believe. And yet here in verse 14, Jesus rebukes them. And he's justified in doing so. He rebukes them for first their unbelief and next their hardness of heart. A very similar charge is made in Luke chapter 24. This collaborates with that. These men, the eleven, so close to Jesus, they would even still rather trust their own expectations than the words of Jesus. Jesus said that he would die and that he would be raised from the dead, but that is preposterous to them, ridiculous to them. The news of one woman or two disciples will not convince them otherwise. You see, the author is highlighting the unlikelihood of these 11 men doing anything worthwhile for the kingdom of God. Their belief is slow, and their hearts are hard. The author is emptying the disciples of our confidence. At this point, you should begin to lose your confidence in these disciples. Shameful. Embarrassing. Do I even want to be called a follower of Jesus if they're like this? Well, the resurrection of Jesus has practical implications. Even weak followers will become heralds of the good news. Look at verse 20 real quickly. Look what these weak disciples do. They went out and preached everywhere. What a beautiful story this is going to be. These slow-to-believe, hard-hearted men, men who are close to Jesus, they're able to go out and be heralds. Well, look what happens in the middle. Before verse 20, verses 15 through 29, the command of Jesus is actually extraordinary. In verse 14, Jesus appears before the disciples together at a meal. And this is a picture that comes from Luke 24. And at some point during their time together, Jesus rebukes them, but he also commands them. He says in verse 15, Go into all the world and proclaim the gospel to the whole creation. This command, it's extraordinary. How can he say these words to these disciples as I've been introduced to them? These disciples are slow to believe and hard-hearted. Verse 15 is too much for them. They can't do this. Go into all the world and proclaim the gospel of the whole creation? Well, notice that Jesus here uses one of the most powerful words in the Bible for preaching, and that word is heralding. Heralding. In the ancient world, a herald was a very significant person. 
This is a person who was involved in uh, uh, carrying the king's special messages to the public. This was the king's official mouthpiece, official communicator. It's not that a king would have a dozen heralds. A king would have very few heralds. They're close to the king, and he can trust them to say only what he wants them to say. That's what a herald is. This herald and this herald alone would have authority to bring the king's news to the front lines of a battle. The words of this herald are the words of the king. This herald could go to the front lines and make a promise to the enemy, a promise of peace if terms are met. And this herald could go to the enemy, front lines of battle, and offer a promise of destruction if the terms are not met. The herald speaks for the king. And these are special heralds indeed. These heralds are being commanded by Jesus to go out into all the world, herald to the whole of creation. There could not be a larger playing field. The whole world and all of creation is on the mind of Jesus and targeted by the command of Jesus. This extends not only to the far reaches, all the world, but also it contracts to our very nearest neighbor who is created by God, the person who lives next door to me, the person sitting next to me perhaps right now. The command is extraordinary. So it's extraordinary uh, for the first reason, uh, and that is that this command carries the authority of Jesus. The second reason it is extraordinary is because this command has eternal consequences. You see in verse 16 that whoever believes the message of the herald and is baptized will be saved. This is a promise of deliverance, not just from sin, but from the very punishment of sin. The herald is to go out into the world and proclaim a message that would say, not even God's condemnation can touch you if you believe in the gospel. They will have eternal life because they will have a status of innocence before the king himself. You can also see in verse 16 another promise. Whoever does not believe in the message of the herald will get what he or she deserves. God's condemnation, eternal damnation. That's quite a message, isn't it? This is what the herald is to do. It is an extraordinary command because it is full of authority, and it's an extraordinary command because it has eternal consequences. But it's also an extraordinary command because it has accompanying signs. Now look at verse 17. For those who believe in the gospel, there are five signs that will accompany their belief. You see them in 17 and 18. They will be able to cast out demons, be able to speak in new tongues or languages. They will be able to pick up serpents with their hands, to consume deadly poison without death, to be able to lay hands on the sick and to make them well. Now, when I think about preaching this passage, verses 9 through 20, I think I'm, I'm very hazy on where this passage comes from. Its authority seems different to me than the authority of Mark's gospel. And when I come to verses 17 and 18, I become especially thankful for that because these are hard verses. I'm not sure exactly what to do with these verses. But let me try. And again, I know you're patient. There are lots of questions here. Are believers promised all five of these signs? Can believers count on these signs at all times? Can believers uh, today count on uh, having no fear of a snake bite or poison or illness? And if I die or become ill from any of those things, am I not a believer? 
I'm exaggerating the questions for sure. But notice what the passage does tell us. You have to skip down to verse 20. These signs are very specific, aren't they? They're meant to confirm the message of a herald. And probably not any herald, but these particular heralds. Look at verse 20. The signs are not there to remove demonic possession and sickness once and for all. The signs are actually there to, uh, to serve as a confirmation. A confirmation that what these weak disciples are preaching is true. Another uh, word for confirmation is this. The, the signs are meant to strengthen the preaching of God's Word, to establish the truth of the herald's message. They're there in a support capacity. They're secondary, not primary. If the herald is especially weak, the sign is there to confirm what the herald says. Are these heralds particularly weak men that need a confirmation with their preached message? Can you answer that for me? Are they weak men that need God's confirmation of the preached message? Yes, we have been told over and over again that these are weak men. They're hard-hearted. They're slow to believe. But these signs were present in their preaching ministry, not by their strength, but by God's power to confirm God's message. These men in their weakness during this time in the life of the church serve as great pictures of what it looks like and how it feels to preach the gospel to the whole world. I wonder this, I'm asking you to wonder with me, I wonder if maybe the writer of this passage wanted to remind the readers of this passage that signs actually occurred in the preaching ministry of these eleven that what Jesus promised them actually happened. Most of these miraculous phenomena are actually recorded in the New Testament church. You can go right down the list. They're already in the Bible in uh, the book of Acts as confirmation of gospel preaching. Read Acts. These accompanied the preaching of the gospel. Again, the only exception is the deadly poison, which I just don't know about that one. But I know that these signs are meant to accompany the preaching ministry of these particular men to confirm the authority of the gospel from their lips to their hearers. These signs are not guaranteed for us today, nor should they be. If we think they are, we actually devalue the gospel message. We are called in God's word to pray for the healing of others. And we certainly pray for the deliverance of others from, demon from demonic forces. But we trust God to do this. We know from experience that prayer for physical healing, even as Christian people, doesn't always lead to physical healing. And we trust that God knows how to care for us in our sicknesses. We know this. And when someone is healed, it doesn't mean that in that physical healing a person suddenly becomes saved. The command of Jesus is to preach the gospel, and it's an authoritative command. And his command has eternal consequences. What about the sign of his gospel for today? The sign of his gospel today is not a miraculous sign like that. It's the miraculous sign of new life in new believers. I really do believe that what the writer of this gospel is doing is giving us an application to encourage us to preach the gospel, that the res resurrection of Jesus has practical implications such that even weak followers like you and, you and I will become heralds of the good news. Now, verse 20. I want to finish here. 
because these weak disciples actually did something that was extraordinary. This passage frustrates me, no doubt. I don't necessarily like preaching from it, but I love the application of this passage this morning, which I can assure you is found throughout the words of Scripture. We as Christian people are called to proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ. We are to proclaim that that good news, not based on our authority, but on the authority of the King. And we are to trust that that good news is the means by which someone stands before God, innocent in his sight. All of us are called to tell others about Jesus. Whether you feel strong in your walk or weak, whether you've been a Christian for decades or a few weeks or a few days, Whether you have lots of diplomas and degrees or none at all, whether you are eloquent or not, whether you have lots of scripture stored up in your head or just a few ingredients of the story of redemption. If you have placed your trust in Jesus for eternal salvation, you can do this. You can do this. You can go out and preach. You can do verse 20 by God's grace. You can do this everywhere. These men did. The the woman at the beginning of this passage did. So can you. And let me test you. I could gather any of you this afternoon and ask you to tell me about your favorite app on your phone. Some of you would go into great detail. Your favorite restaurant in this city. Your favorite vacation destination and why. I can round you up this afternoon, any one of you, and ask you to tell me about your kids. That'd be a long conversation about your parents, about your siblings, about your hometown. Can I also gather you up and ask you to tell me about your freedom from condemnation? Can you tell me about your Savior, your King, your friend? What did he do? And where is he now? Can you tell me? Can you tell me? You can tell me. And I can tell you. The resurrection of Jesus has very practical implications. Even weak followers in the gospel of grace become heralds of the good news. Thanks for enduring a sermon from a passage that I'm not too sure about. (laughs) Let's pray together. Father, we, we know, we know that your gospel saves. We know that. All of us who profess faith in Jesus know that you have made us a new creation by your own power. And we know, Heavenly Father, that you can do that to others and others and others and others. Oh, Holy Father, compel us to go out into the world and to all creation being heralds of the good news that has saved us. In Jesus' name, amen.